Well, hello again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here, and a special welcome to our guests here today. We're glad you're here with us. In a few moments, we're going to be walking through a biblical text from the book of Micah. It's found on page 10 in your order of worship. It's also found on page 730 of that dark uh, Bible there in front of you on the chair. And if you do not have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We would love for you to have that. Again, today's passage is found on page 730 in that chair Bible. And if you are one of our guests, if you'd like to find out more about our church, you can turn to page 15 near the back cover of our order of worship, and there's a QR code there you could scan. And if you do that, that takes you to a page. You can tell us some stuff about yourself. You can find out some things about us. And if you'd like to sit down and have coffee with a staff person, that's the easiest way to do it. We would love to talk to you more about whatever it is you'd like to talk about. So we're walking our way through the Old Testament book of Micah. Micah is a minor prophet, and one of the easiest ways for us to understand a book like the Minor Prophets is to remember that God comes through these prophets and he speaks to his own. So this is not God introducing himself to people who don't know him. This is God sort of reintroducing himself to people who know him, who have become very comfortable with him. And so he's kind of giving them a little bit of fatherly critique. So for those of us who've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Old Testament minor prophets are really good books for us to go through and look at how God talks to those who are already in covenant with him to help us have a stronger faith. And if you're not a Christian, if you're here today, it's good to watch as God critiques his own, because so often you may feel like you're the subject of critiques, but really the scripture has much more to say about those who claim faith than those who do not. So to get us into the mindset of this text, I want to take you back to another Old Testament story. It's weird. It's in Genesis 32. It's in the age of the patriarchs, and one of the patriarchs names Jacob, who's kind of a scoundrel, has this incident where overnight one night he wrestles physically with some form of angelic being, a manifestation of God. Somehow he wrestles physically. And over the course of the night, they don't overcome each other. And finally, near the end of the day, the heavenly figure reaches out and kind of touches him on a hip, throws his hip out of joint. And for the rest of his days, Jacob walks with a limp. But he also walks with, we'll call it, a personal or internal or spiritual limp as well. From that moment on, he's a changed man. Before this moment, he was kind of a very insecure schemer, always looking for the easy way out or trying to grasp onto things, not really trusting in God to provide. And from this moment on, he walks with a limp of humility, no longer a self-assured man, but he's a humble, changed, faithful person. It's a foundational story for the Old Testament people, and it's the background for today's passage from Micah. So where we've been in Micah so far is that God has promised that he will exalt his grace, and when he does so, it will draw all the nations to him. It's an audacious claim that basically says God's grace will change the world. We saw last week as we walked through that, that Jesus Christ himself fulfills that promise in the gospel. And he continues to fulfill these promises of God's exalted grace, drawing in the nations today in the gospel. Today's passage is going to look at that same exalted grace, but instead of from the perspective of all the other nations, it's going to look at it from the perspective of his wayward people right there in Jerusalem. So with that in mind, let's go to God's Word now. We'll be in Micah chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Again, it's printed for you on page 10 in your order of worship. It's on page 730 in the chair Bible there. 
This is God's word. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make a remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain has seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon, and there you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now this is God's word. Let's pray together. Now gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your word again, we ask that once again you would open this text up to us. Father, would you give us your truth for our growth, for our transformation? Would you open up your word that we might see ourselves as we truly are and see the beauty of your grace? We pray this, Father, by your spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. So what we see in this passage here is that when God exalts his grace, what he's going to do is he will gather and rule all the nations over his outcasts. He'll make them strong. He'll make them healthy again, even if it hurts them. And that gets us to our theme for today. The kind of idea we're going to orbit around is this, is that God's exalted grace gathers his wounded and rejected so he can protect and restore them. We're going to jump right in with what I'm calling a lame assembly in verses 6 and 7. It begins with the phrase, in that day, indicating that he's going right back to the same time period he talked about in the first five verses. Last week, we looked at God's great work of grace and its effects on the nations. Now we're looking at God's great work of grace, but from the perspective of his wayward people. And we see right off the bat that when God comes, he, ga- he comes and he gathers the lame, he gathers the broken, he gathers the wounded, he gather- gathers the scared. Using the metaphor of sheep, the metaphor of lambs, these are the sort of sheep that are unacceptable before him. These are the ones you don't bring these to worship. These are not the ones that God likes. But notice here, God's grace comes to the unacceptable the unworthy, and it makes them acceptable even when they are unworthy. What it makes me think of, it makes me think of picking teams back in elementary school. Man, I was, I was not an athlete. I could never figure out how to hit that little tiny white ball with that crazy stick, but I could kick a ball. And so I loved kickball at recess time, but had to go through the stress of getting out there at recess. You're standing in a group, and I guess if you brought the ball, you got to be one of the captains. I never quite understood who decided who the captains. It's kind of like, who decides when you hit seventh grade who the cool people are and who aren't, right? It clearly happens, but I don't know how they lost that lottery. Anyway, back to kickball. So you're standing there making kickball, and you're like, oh, please, I know I'm not the best, but man, please don't let me be last. I mean, at least, can't I go, can I go ahead of the smelly kid? Or, or, the, or the kid, we all remember, you know, wet his pants in first grade. I, I'm ahead of him at least, right? Please don't pick me last. And this passage comes, and it tells us that God picks the losers like me last, those who aren't the best, those you wouldn't want on your team, those people naturally don't look at like, that guy's a winner. God's like, that guy is not a winner, and I want him for my team. 
I pick those. Then that sounds so great, sounds so good, and then we kind of have to ruin the ride with the next little phrase in the verse where it says, those whom I have afflicted. It's really hard not to read that as a, look what you made me do. See, the Bible has this really strong commitment to the sovereignty of God. He is in charge, and he disciplines those he loves. But still, that's kind of a bit unsatisfying, isn't it? Until we dig into the text and we see that when God says, I'm going to gather my lame, what he says is, I'm going to gather my limping ones. I'm going to gather those using the exact same wording from Genesis 32. What I did to Jacob when I made him limp and lame, those people that I do in history when I make them limp and lame, I'm going to gather them all together. After God inflicted Jacob with a limp, Jacob is a better person. It did him good to be afflicted with that limp. And so using one of the foundational stories of their culture, God through Micah comes and says, I'm going to do to you what I did to Jacob. He explains the good that's going to come from their difficulties. It's good for us to remember that because in the religious realm, we tend to take theological truths and our circumstances and put them together into really bad conclusions. Like by the time of Jesus, you know, several hundred years after this is written, we see it very pronounced where the people in Jesus' time, they knew, they just knew if life was going well for you, it's because God was blessing you. He was pleased with you. God liked you. If life was hard, if you were in poverty or if you were hungry or if you were going through struggles, well, obviously God's getting you for some sort of hidden sin. God's not, you're not living right. God is punishing you. We know this. It is known. This is how it is. And people felt that way back in Micah's time. And so Micah's coming to him saying, no, no, no. Because what they would do is they would say, well, those of us who have resources, we're the rich, we're the powerful. Obviously, God likes us. Duh, we wouldn't be rich and powerful if he didn't. So it's okay. We're actually doing God's work when we go and take the land from the poor, when we deny justice to the downtrodden, when we do all these horrible things to them, it's okay. We're God's instruments of discipline because if they were living right, their life would show it. It's obvious that they're not the good guys here. Micah comes along and says, no. Verse 7 says that God takes the unacceptable, the losers, and he makes them into a new flock, and he will actually make them into a powerful nation, and he himself will reign over them as their king. No longer will they be subject to a poor government or dishonest judges. The Lord himself will rule them forever he says, because God's exalted grace gathers his wounded and rejected so he can protect and restore them. The next thing we see in verse 8, I'm calling glory days. I just have to confess to you real quick. This is one of those passages where I really wish I wasn't part of a denomination and a church that took God's word seriously. I really wish that I got to get up here and just give my religious political harangues on things and call it a sermon because it'd be a lot easier than digging through something like verse 8 because verse 8 is like hard, y'all, okay? It really is. My job is to kind of explain it to you and help you apply it, so let's jump in together and see what we can do. All right, here's how I want you to understand this, okay? So let's imagine you're reading a text from, let's say, 800 AD, okay? Happens to me all the time. Maybe it's a new experience for you. So you're reading this ancient text, 
And you get to a phrase that says something like this. Mr. Sawyer's plied his craft. Now you're stopping and going, huh, okay. Does that mean that Mr. Sawyer, in other words, the person who owned a saw, who went out and did this and then took the wood to the carpenter, plied his craft. The Sawyer gave wood to the carpenter. Or does it mean that some cat named Sawyer's did whatever it is he does? See, this is the translator's dilemma. When we get to a proper name, do we translate the name, and, and that's the sentence, or do we say the name and kind of just leave it out there? Okay? Now, I know some of you are asleep already. Wake up. Wait, so, in verse 8, we have a proper name, but depending on which translation you have, they translate the name, or they just say the name, and there's all sorts of it. There's the ESV goes one way, the NIV goes another, as always, the KJV goes its own way. I mean, so who knows what it is? So we're going to try to work through this together, okay? That's the issue. So look with me now at verse 8. It says this, <clears throat> And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it shall come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Oh, don't you just feel so encouraged now? That's one of those verses we want to teach at Vacation Bible School, right? That's a good one. I'm being facetious because it's a hard verse. The ESV translation chooses to translate the proper name, and so that phrase, Hill the daughter of Zion, is actually a proper name. We don't know what's going on here. Here's our best guess. He's talking to the tower flock, if you notice, which is weird. It's a minor prophet thing to talk to an object. So there's this tower that's going to help protect the sheep. God says, I'm the protector of the sheep, and now I'm going to talk to this protector, and I'm going to say... Either, O hill, the daughter of Zion, which can mean a fortress, or it's a proper name of the specific fortress that back in their golden age, David conquered to make Jerusalem bigger. Okay, again, I know you're like, you're killing me, Sawyers. Okay, so here's the point, regardless of either way. Here's the point. What he's saying is this. He's saying, I want you to remember how amazing the golden age of Jerusalem was. Remember the wealth, the political power, the military might. Remember how amazing Israel was. Nations came to Israel to get wisdom. You were such a powerful nation. Remember that golden age? What I'm going to do to all the losers in my people right now is going to be even better than that golden age. I'm going to come and I'm going to make, now I'm not just going to make Jerusalem great again. Forget the red hats. This is going to be even better than you can imagine because buried under all that, you know, daughters and hills and promises is, is God says, I'm going to make Jerusalem amazing. I'm going to rule and reign as your king in Jerusalem. This city will again be the center of dominion and power before the Lord. Hey, boys and girls, that was kind of thick. I know I want to make sure you're sticking with me, so let's look at your verse 8. Here's, here's what we're trying to say here is this. The worn-out defenses around my people will be strong again. Like in the good old days under King David, my king will reign again for Jerusalem's people. See, so what's going on here is Micah is kind of given a hint. He's given a whiff of something he's really going to cover in a little bit. He's going to start talking about this thing called the Messiah, in a couple chapters. He's laying the foundation for this idea, one of the earliest books in the Old Testament to talk about this, of there's going to be this spiritual, political ruler from David's line, a king like David, who's going to come and he's just going to fix it all. He's going to be great David's greater son and he's going to have a greater people and a greater kingdom and everything about him is going to be great. 
This is why, by the way, by the time of Jesus, when all these messianic promises were known, they kept trying to make Jesus a political king whenever he would do something really cool. Because they're thinking, oh, he's the one who's going to kick out Rome. We have a new king here. And this is why Jesus kept running away and hiding it. I'm not that kind of king. The people of Jesus' time, they just couldn't see how this golden promised age could come about while they were still under the heel of Rome. But Jesus refused that kind of kingship because he wasn't after some petty tyrant like Rome. He was after the tyrants of sin, the tyrants of death. Because God's exalted grace, when it is exalted, it gathers the wounded and rejected so it can protect and restore them. And we see that here in the final point, hard labor, starting in verse 9. So Micah has reiterated the promises of grace to the outcast to protect them, to rule over them, and now he turns back to his present audience listening to him, and he kind of ironically asks them why they're so upset. Again, in case you're visiting or in case you forgot the historical context, what's going on with Micah is there were rumors at the very beginning of this nation called Assyria, way far north, no big deal, don't worry about it, and within Micah's career, All of a sudden, those little rumors of a small nation became an invading empire. They came in. They gobbled up the ten northern tribes. They ceased to exist. They're gone. They invade Judah. They surround Jerusalem and put the city under siege, and everybody's starving and afraid. So depending on which part of Micah you read, sometimes the people are like, meh, Assyria, Shmeria, who cares? And other times, like, we're all going to die. And it appears that they're in panic mode in verses 9 and 10. We're all going to die. But remember who these people are. These are the people who are like, yeah, we go do all the ceremonial stuff on Sabbath. Yeah, we've done all the hoops God puts in front of us on the Sabbath. But then Sunday through Friday, the rest of the week, we live as if there is no God. We do our own thing. We, we have rampant injustice. We steal from each other. We live as if God doesn't matter. So we give him ceremonial affection and attention, but in real life, we don't really care. And so now that real life hurts God comes to them basically and says, why are you talking to me now? He basically asks, is there no king in you? The answer is yes, they have a king. Has your counselor perished? Yes, they have counselors that they listen to. Why are you not seeking wisdom and comfort from all the other idols you go after when life is easy? Now that life is hard, why are you turning back to me? Where's your real king? Where's your real counselors? It's kind of ironic. It's kind of sarcastic. Yes, that's in the Bible. Read Jesus in the Gospels. He's very sarcastic. See, the people of Jerusalem have ignored their God until disaster comes. And then they're like, oh, can you give us a little help here? Oh, dear Christian, when life is hard, when things kind of come together, and maybe disaster might be the right word, How often are we tempted to take control, to manipulate the situation, try to force a certain outcome? Because we assume deep down God's not up to the task of this disaster. See, a limping faith expects hardships. It's not thrown off by that. In fact, a limping faith gets very careful when life is going really well because it knows that that's when you can really slip that's when you can really mess up that's when you can fall into some serious mistakes when life is good and the pressure's off and to help us kind of think about it that way he turns now to the to the 
metaphor of a woman in labor to give them hope. He tells them, hey, what you need to do is you need to live in that pain and discomfort. Instead of flee the disaster, you need to embrace it and live in it. He basically says, look, if you are like a woman in labor, then go ahead and writhe and groan like a woman in labor. Embrace that pain. Just as you wouldn't try to come in and save a woman in the middle of labor because the point of the pain is to get to this wonderful thing coming, so too God says, I'm not going to save you from this hard thing because there's a wonderful thing coming on the other end of it. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. But then he slips in a little bit of hope there by saying, not Assyria, the imminent threat, but destruction will come from Babylon. An unheard of, unknown threat at the time. Their, their ears would have heard that as, yes, destruction is coming, but it's a long way away. Now, what we know, what they didn't know, is 130 years later it comes true, but then after all those difficulties and hardships, look what he promises in the second part of verse 10. It says this, there, meaning in Babylon, it says you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. There. In that disaster of the Babylonian captivity, you're rescued. There I will redeem you. It's in that coming trial and difficulty and pain that their redemption will come. It is there that God's people had to learn how to worship him and live faithfully under him, having only the words of the Old Testament. The temple's gone. The sacrifices are gone. Have you ever read through the Gospels and all the stuff Jesus does in the temple and been like, or the synagogues and been like, where is that in the Old Testament? The fact of the matter is it's not. The synagogue was invented during the Babylonian captivity because they had no access to all the blood sacrifice stuff. They had to do something. And then our, our Lord, by going to the synagogues and ministering there as the living word, put the word stamp of approval, said, yes, this is right. The early church looked at the synagogue system of worship and went control C, control V, and boom. That's why we do everything we do now today. You walk through our, our order of worship, it's the synagogue system from ancient Babylon when they had nothing but God's word. Look at how God has redeemed and purified and used that to help his people. And that's, that's what we know of it. They had no idea any of that. Now, oh, Christians, as you look back over your life, are there things that you absolutely do not want to go through again, but you're kind of glad they happened because they made you a better person? That's what God's talking about here. You matured. You gained wisdom from that hard thing because God uses that. Because God's exalts his grace, gathers his wounded and rejected so he can protect and restore them. All right, well, let's wrap this up. What I want you to see as this all comes together is look at the efforts that the Lord goes through to gather both strangers and his wayward people. When Christians, let that give you hope. God doesn't have a disposable people he doesn't get sick of your junk. He doesn't get sick of our superficiality. He doesn't get sick of our constant repeated sin, repeat, repent, repeat. He doesn't get tired of it. If Israel was too difficult of a project for him to save, if he'd simply abandoned that because it was too much, where would we have our hope in our continued struggles and failures? See, we see here, don't we, uh, 
the need for the gospel. We see how Micah is looking forward to something he can't quite get his hands on. He he knows God's going to do something amazing. And what we can understand that they couldn't is that when God's people could not obey their way up to God in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of this law. When we could not be faithful enough, God came down to us. He didn't wait for us to be acceptable. He said, you are unacceptable. Let's do, let's do something about that together. When the world looks at us and calls us rejects, when we're despised, we have hope in that our Lord Jesus Christ was despised and rejected by men, don't we? See, Jesus Christ came, and what did he do? He lived the life that God demands of his people that we see over and over again in Micah, the faithfulness he demands Jesus Christ did. And then Jesus Christ died the death that we deserve for our faithlessness, our selfishness, our rebellion, our pride. And then in his resurrection, Jesus Christ did defeat the tyrants of death and sin, and he gives that victory to us when we place our faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord. Now let these difficult Old Testament passages like this drive you to see the beauty of Jesus because God does what it takes to come and get his wayward people because God's exalted grace gathers the wounded and rejected so he can protect and restore them. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for difficult passages Lord, we thank you that you come to us and show us how long-suffering you are, how you make amazing promises, and you keep them. Father, I pray for those here today who know you, that our faith would be established even deeper in your heart, that we would see how much you love us, how much you put up with us, how much you suffer from us, and how much you don't turn us away, even when you should. And I pray, Father God, for those here today who don't know you, that they have seen your gospel, they've seen your grace, and that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up, he would draw all people to himself even now. Father, would you cause many to repent and believe your gospel so that even right here, right now, your kingdom would come and your will would be done. pray that you would do this, Father, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.